ReachMD XM160 now presents Second Opinion Live with hosts Drs. Matt Bernholtz and Michael Greenberg. Welcome to Second Opinion Live on ReachMD Radio XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. Yes, he is, and I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. Welcome to our first show of 2011. Matt has the flu, and he's here. We are radio professionals. Matt's loving it. Happy New Year to all our listeners, especially those with the flu, because we're all connected. On our program today, we're looking to the future. We'll talk with Dr. Anthony Atala, director of the Institute for Regenerative Medicine at the Wake Forest University School of Medicine. He does amazing work in the lab, from creating inkjet printed organs to modeling miniature human livers, and he'll tell us more about what he's up to later in the show. And you can talk to him too, or get a liver from him by calling 888-MD1-REACH, that's 888-631-7322. Come join our conversation or email us at sol at reachmd.com. Tweet us at handle ReachMD or leave a shout out on Facebook. Be my friend, Matt, please. <laughs> Too late for that. Plus, we'll get to the bottom line on this show and tell you what physicians need to know about tax law changes for 2011 to help you protect those earnings in the coming tax Just year. Just send in everything you earn. That's what they want. And we're going to look at a topic that comes up a lot when we talk about cutting costs in the healthcare system. Do we actually do more good for patients when we provide less care? We'll be talking to Dr. Maria Zilberberg founder and president of EviMed Research Group, LLC, specializing in epidemiology, health services, and outcomes research. Dr. Zilberberg has recently written persuasively on this issue on the healthcare blog in an article titled, Why Medical Testing is Never a Simple Decision. Matt, the less you treat people, the better they are. Words to live by. We'll get to all of that in the next half hour, and then some, because more is more on this show for Second Opinion Live. Happy New Year! Welcome to the first show of 2011, but first... Some recent headlines from the world of medicine. On the 3rd of January, Johnson & Johnson and Massachusetts General Hospital announced a $30 million investment in developing technology to detect cancer cells in the blood. The test has been dubbed the liquid biopsy. It's an experimental test that uses a plastic microchip whose inner surfaces are covered in antibodies to grab cancer cells from the blood. Sounds like a Microchip, we've all heard about those before. Those cells can then be analyzed and counted. Yeah, and some promising results associated with this kind of test were published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2008. It could, if all goes well, help doctors detect cancer and also tailor treatment. But developing cool technology is one thing. Sure is. We're cool. Making sure that it has a real impact in patient care is another. In 2009, the NIH noted that the technology to capture circulating tumor cells didn't have clear prognostic value yet. And a few details have been reported yet about what this future system will look like, except that it will be small enough to sit on a lab bench, should be able to zero in on the biology of rare cells. We'll probably have our picture on each chip, Matt. I should hope so. Now, Johnson & Johnson will be working to improve the microchip, trying different designs and cheaper plastic to make it practical for mass production, but no word on potential price yet. And you know it's probably going to be pretty pricey. The company already discontinued a once-highly-touted genetic test called GeneSearch, which was supposed to help surgeons find out if breast cancer spread to lymph nodes, but it was expensive, it gave a lot of false positives, probably a lot of false negatives, and it never replaced surgical biopsy. How much do you think they'll pay us for our pictures on those chips? 
I'm going right. to guess we're going to be paying for that And one. now, that was serious news, so now let's turn to some lighter news. Let's call it an occupational <laughs> hazard. News. That's right. <laughs> we're all familiar with the phantom limb syndrome. Well, now there's documentation of a new phenomenon known as phantom cell phone vibration. Oh, my God. Not on iPhones. That's the physical feeling the pager or cell phone in your pocket is vibrating even when it's not. Yes, the lay press has been reporting phantom cell phone vibration <laughs> as a common experience for a few years now. Neurologists have claimed that it's not all in people's heads. Just like for those who have gone through amputation and experienced phantom limb, there's a physiological basis for phantom cell phone vibrations. They could represent the brain's attempts to treat the phone as part of the body or as another limb, well, I which to, I know I, is your... I, I don't have to worry about that. I don't have a brain. <laughs> but how prevalent is the experience of phantom vibrations? How many do you get, Matt? To find out, researchers at Bay State Medical Center in Springfield, Massachusetts, surveyed the hospital staff. Did someone pay for this? And published their findings in the British Medical Journal. Of the 176 medical staff who responded to the survey, 68% experienced phantom vibration. Ooh. The sensation was most common among residents and attending physicians. No surprise and there. And most commonly associated with carrying the device in the pocket of their breast, but probably most commonly when they were asleep and dreaming about it. Well, the people who got the least sleep, residents attending physicians, no wonder that they get the phantom cell phone vibration. And no word yet on a cure, mainly because nobody cares. We but don't the sensations care. were dulled by turning off the vibrate mode. Imagine that, which worked for 75% of those who tried it. I guarantee you, if it's, we're talking about residents and attending physicians, they probably were too tired to even think of that. Others just put the device in a different pocket or got a new phone. <laughs> I love these solutions here. And then the rest didn't do anything. They just kind of went with the flow. And I understand that you get phone calls even when your phone is turned off. You get calls. Well, I do, but that's really a okay. We shouldn't a talk problem. about that on the radio. <laughs> that's okay. probably a manifestation of <clears> that flu. <throat> All right. Well, try this for an uncomfortable vibration. Your cell phone goes off because one of your patients just tried to friend you on Facebook. Should you friend your patients? What would Hippocrates say? First, be not friends. Is that primum non amici or something? Well, to find out where Facebook trends are headed with physicians, French researchers, always the French, of course, surveyed 405 residents and fellows at Rouen University Hospital in Rouen, France. You always give me the French words to pronounce. You know I can say <laughs> Welcome. them. Welcome. All right. Of 202 respondents, 85% said they would automatically decline a friend. How French? Request from a patient, and 15 said they would consider that request. But only eight users had actually received a friend request from a patient. Of those, only four of them had accepted them. This is what I get for taking Spanish what is my a whole life. What a friend comes up with a bottle of wine and a course, croissant? Of course, we do all our stories with a French twist to them. Now, the authors stopped short of taking sides on whether friending patients is good or bad for the doctor-patient relationship. Now, you can make a case either way, though I think it's safe to assume most are probably against the idea right now, at least those in the medical profession. There are just so many potential potholes that you could stumble into with this defies the mind. But the authors did ask their respondents whether employers should prohibit physicians from having Facebook accounts, and 93% said no, they shouldn't be able to do that. Do you think in French Facebook you can become a friend or maybe a lover? Would you like to be my lover, my friend, my whatever? I'm going to pass on that in okay. a thousand different ways. All right. And finally, <laughs> let's get back to our country. Let's focus on the bottom line today. 
Matt, time to talk taxes. We all love taxes. Congress passed some year-end legislation that may affect your bottom line. To explain what's new and help us save some money for 2010 and into 2011, we have as a public service for our listeners on the line, Joe Nicola. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. Joe Nicola. He's a certified public accountant and tax attorney in Pittsburgh and tax director with Cistron and Company. Joe, welcome. Save us some dough. Hello, gentlemen. How are you? Hi. Good to have you with us. Uh, Joe, what do our listeners need to know about new tax legislation that was passed at the end of 2010? Well, I think the most important element of the uh, legislation that was passed uh, received uh, quite a bit of media attention, and that is that um, that uh, Congress extended the uh, so-called uh, Bush tax cuts. Uh, you might recall from the... Uh, uh, extensive media attention uh, provided with regard to this uh, subject matter that uh, tax rates were uh, expected to go up and uh, scheduled to go up on January 1st, 2011. And um, that, that was part of the law as it was enacted way back in 2001. Uh, what, what Congress did after uh, quite a bit of negotiation, as I think most of us know, uh, was to extend the uh, so-called tax cuts for another two years so that, for example, the top marginal rate uh, for regular uh, compensation income uh, remains at 35%, which is relevant, certainly, uh, in the uh, physician world, as opposed to uh, going up to 39.6%, which is where it was scheduled to go. A lot of my physician clients also engage in stock transactions, and uh, uh, a lot of them made some money in 2010 and are hopefully expecting to do the same in 2011. And for the most part, uh, stock transactions that uh, produce gains are uh, taxed under a tax regime known as long-term capital gain tax rates. Those under the Bush tax cuts were taxed at 15% and were scheduled to go to 20% on January 1st. They remain at 15%, which is also relevant uh, to uh, the uh, physician world, if you will. Uh, so those far and away are the most significant aspects of uh, the uh, last-minute legislation uh, passed by Congress. So we have the extension of the Bush tax cuts, which is uh, very good news. Well, Joe, are there any special deductions that doctors may not know about that we should be deducting? Like, I like to deduct Matt totally. I bring him water every week, and I want to write him off. Yeah, I think that uh, if, if you wanted to do that, uh, I think uh, as long as the Internal Revenue Service wouldn't uh, have a problem with that, I think we won't okay. tell anybody. <laughs> as long as it's our secret and we don't tell anybody, I think we'll be fine. <laughs> so, any, any, any special yeah. deductions here we should um, know about? Yeah, and uh, actually, there are quite a few, I think, for uh, physicians personally as well as uh, from a business perspective. Well, we have two minutes, so give us the top five. I will give you the top five. The uh, uh, first is uh, the uh, retirement plan uh, deductions. That is, uh, there is a, uh, a retirement plan deduction known as a simplified employee pension that many physicians don't know about. If uh, they operate uh, their own practice, uh, they can uh, establish a, a plan all the way up until uh, they file their income tax return in 2011 and claim a deduction for up to 49 thousand dollars. 
The second item relates to business equipment. Uh, generally, when a physician purchases equipment, regardless of whether it's medical equipment or other types of equipment, okay, uh, for example, a desk, a copier, normally those are deductible over a period of years, but uh, for 2010, 11, and uh, 12, up to uh, half a million dollars can be deducted uh, immediately, right off the bat, the whole purchase price fully deductible, and that's relevant to a lot of physicians who operate their own practices and purchase equipment, for example, dentists and uh, colleges, that type of thing. Or radio that's, DJs, of yeah, course. Yeah, that's a hell of a desk, half a million dollar desk, Matt, that's, we can write uh, off. And uh, it's very beneficial to uh, physicians who uh, uh, conduct practices and are capital intensive for a variety of reasons, okay? Uh, so very important from that standpoint, okay? Um, the the uh, 2010 legislation also allows physicians to reduce self-employment taxes as well for uh, health insurance contributions. That is, if uh, a physician pays health insurance premiums. Up until uh, 2010, uh, the law simply did not allow a deduction for self-employment tax purposes for health insurance premiums. Now health insurance premiums are permitted to be deducted uh, in arriving at self-employment income and reducing FICA taxes. That's very important because that's new, and it's buried in the legislation, and a lot of uh, taxpayers don't know about that provision. Okay? The next item relates to the alternative minimum tax. Okay? Uh, the uh, legislation that Congress passed at the end of the year, just a few weeks ago, increased the exemption that taxpayers are entitled to from the alternative minimum tax so that physicians who are married are entitled to reduce uh, their income by $72,000. Um, if a physician does his own tax return and purchased software, okay, for tax preparation purposes that does not yet reflect these upgrades or these updates, particularly in the alternative minimum tax, the physician will overpay his taxes. And so a physician needs to understand that if he's going to do his own taxes or she's going to do her own income taxes with software, get the most updated uh, piece of software for that purpose, which, quite frankly, according to the Internal Revenue Service, may not be available until sometime in February or early March. So patience is the hallmark as far as that well, goes. Thank you, Joe. We have to cut you off there because we're out of Very time. Matt, you should get married. You'll save a lot of money. That's what he said. Absolutely. Thanks for talking with us, Joe. Very good. You all take care. Thanks. We've been talking thank with you. Joe Nicola. He's a certified public accountant and tax attorney, also the tax director. Uh, also the tax director with Sisterson and Company in Pittsburgh, and he said, Matt, get married. <laughs> if anybody will marry a person with the flu. I'll marry you. When the PBS show Wired Science described our next guest as a man who bakes things that will make you feel good on the inside, I guarantee they were not talking about cookies. Or if they were, I was definitely watching the wrong show because Dr. Anthony Atala 
helps make human organs. He's director of the Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine at North Carolina's Wake Forest University School of Medicine. Since 2004, the Institute has created insulin-producing cells in the lab, engineered blood vessels for heart bypass surgery, used inkjet printer technology to print a heart, I'll say that again, print a heart, and recently successfully engineered miniature human livers that may someday lead to a solution to the liver donor shortage. Dr. Atala has done amazing things in the lab, and we're excited to have him on the show today. Dr. Atala, welcome to Second Opinion Live. Good to be with you. This is great. This is like Star Wars for organs. I love it. We understand you oversee the world's largest lab devoted to bioengineering body parts. How did you and Wake Forest, by extension, achieve this? How did you get into this? You know, we actually got started over 20 years ago, and we were looking at how to actually get cells to grow outside the body, the patient's own cells. That was a tough thing to do uh, several decades ago. And, of course, that was really the, the first step to actually try to create these organs, being able to grow the cells. Well, it always sounded, I mean, when I've been looking into a bit of your research, and I have a very simplistic perspective on it, but it looks like from my standpoint, that it comes down to the right cell line isolation and the right three-dimensional scaffolding as the key tools of the trade here. Is that oversimplifying? Well, you know, it's really not uh, oversimplifying it. It's actually, uh, that is really the basis for what's done, Uh, really getting the right cells and the right three-dimensional structure. Uh, I couldn't have said it better. It's just a matter of uh, realizing, of course, that each tissue and every organ has different requirements. They behave differently. They have different properties. So you have to modify each tissue and organ depending on what they actually do. Now, you're growing miniature livers or working on that, correct? Correct. Do you think that a miniature liver can be implanted and it will actually grow to big enough size in somebody? Or is the next step to grow it outside to a larger size? Yeah, the step is actually to grow it uh, outside to the larger size. And so at this point, we're just growing miniature livers so to be sure that we can get everything to work correctly. And the next step is really how do we make these larger and eventually large enough where we can actually implant these into patients. So let's tell our listeners, how big is a miniature liver? It's about uh, you know, a couple of inches, about the size of your thumb, I would say, if you are uh, you know, an, uh, just an average uh, size person. All right. If you're just joining us... You're listening to Second Opinion Live on ReachMD XM160. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg, alongside Dr. Matt with the flu, Bernholtz. We're talking with Dr. Anthony Atala, Director of the Institute for Regenerative Medicine at North Carolina's Wake Forest University School of Medicine, a fascinating topic about growing human organs outside the body. Yeah, and while we're on the subject, since Michael won't cease talking about my flu here, we might as well talk for a second about the lungs. Uh, mine are completely compromised, as one would expect with the flu. I've been led to understand, you know, the scaffolding for the lungs. Some other institutions have been working on that within mouse models for transplant. They think it's 30 years away, though. It's extraordinarily complex. You know, I think of the lungs as being probably, it has to be one of the most complex organs to try to uh, regenerate, but I'm naive in that respect. I mean, is there a holy grail of organs in regard to doing regeneration? Yeah, you know, there is actually, because there's a stepwise fashion in terms of the complexity of our organs. And really, the simplest organs are the flat structures, such as skin. And and I'm talking about how you engineer the organs, of course, in terms of their simplicity, because it's really mostly one cell type and a flat structure. The next level of complexity are tubularized structures, such as blood vessels or windpipes, 
they're tubular, so they have more than one cell type usually, one cell type on each side, but they're really acting mostly as a conduit, allowing air or fluid to go through at a steady state. The next level of complexity are hollow organs, like the bladder or the stomach. They're more complex because they have to act on demand, so there's a higher interaction with the brain, if you will, on how they will function. And finally, the most complex are by far the solid organs, mainly because there are so many more cells per centimeter in a solid organ than there are in other types of tissues or structures. So by doing so, you can imagine what the requirements are in terms of keeping those solid organs alive and growing. How do you even set up a scaffold for solid organs or for organs that have a ton of movement in space, such as the beating heart or maturing valves? How do you even design a scaffold for such a thing? Well, there are many strategies, actually, that we're using for solid organs, and one of them is actually just to print it. Uh, you know, use three-dimensional printers, cat printers, for example. The same type of printers that you use uh, on, your, on your daily life, whether it be a desktop inkjet printer or uh, printers which are as sophisticated as cat printers, which uh, print other parts for uh, automobiles and other, uh, other enterprises. Uh, what you do really is try to print these cells one layer at a time and, 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 and print the scaffolds one layer at a time with the cells until you're able to build the organ uh, in larger segments. That's one strategy. Another strategy is actually take donor organs and take all the cell elements out of the donor organ using very mild detergents. And then what you're left with is the skeleton of the organ, if you will, and you, then you try to reseat that specific organ. And yet another strategy is to actually um, use uh, wafers or cassettes, create cassettes that you will insert in the organ to augment their function. Um, and finally, you can use cell therapy. We can actually just inject cells into the site of injury and allow these cells to regenerate in the organ itself. I have to tell you, the words you're using sound amazing to me, inkjet printer and detergent and growing organs. I mean, it's such a juxtaposition from these objects. It's like, here, get a laser printer and some you know, uh, joy detergent and make a new heart. It's fascinating. You've spoken before about a general turnaround time of about eight weeks to regenerate an organ. Is that what you're really thinking? Yeah, that's actually the average time. As you can imagine, you know, these systems are very complex. You know, we, we use simple terms to describe them. But in fact, they're complex in how we, we do them and how we create them. Uh, and the eight-week process is essential for most organs because you need at least a four-week time period to grow the cells. And then you need at least a two-week period to actually construct the, uh, the structure that you plan to implant. And then finally, you do leave yourself a couple of weeks of leeway just in case there's a problem in any one of those steps. Well, I'll bet that growth time differs, though, depending on the complexity of the three-dimensional architecture of, of that organ that you're talking about. Is that right? Absolutely. Uh, you know, and, and the more complex the organ, the more cell types you have. And the more cell types you have to grow either separately or together. So you do have a higher risk of, uh, of making, uh, a higher risk of actually building the organ to the specifications that are required. Where are you getting these cell types? Is this, you know, extracellular matrix? Is this embryonic stem cells? What kind of cell lines are you working with? We prefer to use a patient's own cells for many reasons. Uh, we prefer to use a patient's own specific, organ-specific cells. So if we want to engineer a windpipe, we're going to try to use a patient's own windpipe cells. If we're trying to engineer 
uh, a stomach, we're going to try to use the patient's own cells from their, their stomach. The, way, the reason we do that is because those cells already know what they are. A windpipe cell already knows that it's a windpipe cell. We don't need to drive it to become something else. And, and more important, the cells are from the same patient, so they will not reject. There's huge applications for this kind of science in the military. Does the government fund any of your work? You know, we are uh, very fortunate uh, that there's a lot of interest uh, in this field right now, and one of the areas uh, where there is a lot of interest is actually uh, with the Department of Defense and the Army, the Navy, the Air Force. And the reason for that is that, you know, injuries uh, which come out of uh, the military that really would benefit from some of these technologies, these regenerative medicine technologies. And so there is actually uh, a nationwide consortium uh, that has been put together to try to uh, facilitate the translation of these technologies uh, for our wounded warriors. Thank you very much. I, I just volunteered, Matt, to pay more taxes so you would have more money to spend. Yeah, it's well worth it in this our, case. Our, our guest today has been Dr. Anthony Atala, Director of the Institute for Regenerative Medicine at North Carolina's Wake Forest University School of Medicine. Dr. Atala, thank you for joining us for this fascinating subject today on Second Opinion Live. Pleasure to be with you. So, Matt, I wanted to ask him, do you think you can grow foie gras for us, goose livers, and go back to the French story? Is that what it is, foie gras? Foie gras, yes. Sounds more like fraggle, which a makes little me think tiny livers and eating goose, a muppet goose, of some sort. Goose, goose livers would be delicious. <laughs> We're going to move on with that because you're in a whole different category than I am. A few months ago, a new series in the archives of internal medicine caught our attention. It's called Less is More, and it's in response to current debates around healthcare cost-saving, specifically the charges of healthcare rationing. Now, the series looks at situations where overuse of medical care could result in harm and where less care could actually lead to better outcomes. So to test or not to test, that's often the question here. And Dr. Maria Zilberberg has one idea for an effective analytical approach, which she describes in the healthcare blog. Dr. Zilberberg is a professor of epidemiology at the University of Massachusetts and a physician health services researcher with a specific interest in healthcare-associated complications. She's also founder and president of EviMed Research Group, LLC, a consultancy specializing in epidemiology, health services, and outcomes research. Dr. Zilberberg, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much. Welcome. First, talk to us about medical testing in the archives, case reports that you were responding to. What happened? Let our listeners know. So this was a very interesting case. It's actually generated a fair bit of, of controversy um, in the blogosphere, at least. Um, it was a case of a 52-year-old woman with a history of hypertension and obesity who showed up uh, to an emergency room with a vague complaint of a chest pain. Uh, and upon questioning and examining her, it seemed that it probably was not of cardiac origin. Uh, yet to reassure the patient, uh, I think the physician decided to obtain uh, a, a cardiac CT. Uh, and the CT was um, somewhat inconclusive uh, and showed that there might be a possibility of coronary disease. And she was sent uh, for, uh, for an angiogram. Uh, where she unfortunately encountered a very rare but devastating complication of a coronary dissection uh, and uh, uh, eventually had to undergo a cardiac transplant. Um, and that case sort of sparked uh, my interest. We just talked to the guy who can grow a new heart. That's it. The answer is easy. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> tell, just get your ink tell, printer ready. Tell us, tell us about the approach you're advocating now, however. You know, I think we all learned about Bayes' theorem in medical school probably several times. 
Um, and really, uh, Bayesian thinking is what we try to employ when, when we do medicine and when we advise testing and treatment. And it has to do with estimating the patient's risk for having a disease before getting the test, because that really impacts uh, the value of the test, whether it be positive or negative. Uh, and this, this seemed to me like a, a, a very uh, good case for that. So tell us a little bit more about that, because obviously one person thinks, okay, this is an analytical approach. We can use this process of thinking. A lot of people, their first reaction is, well, that seems pretty cold and calculated. It seems like it's taken the human element or equation out of it and the art of medicine. I'd like to hear your perspective on that. Yeah, so, so I think I think that there is room for for a little bit more of an analytic approach in, in how we how we uh, obtain tests. Uh, what I'm suggesting is that you know, as you know, every test has certain characteristics. Sensitivity and specificity are fairly simple to grasp. Then there are, there are these pesky positive and negative predictive values. Uh, sensitivity and specificity are really specific to the test itself. They're characteristics of the test. They have nothing to do with the population in which the test is being employed. Now, on the other hand, positive predictive value and negative predictive value are functions of the population uh, in which you are testing. And the example that I gave in my article has to do, it's a fairly tried and true example of mammography. Uh, and for example, if you, uh, a, a mammogram has 80% uh, sensitivity uh, and uh, somewhat higher specificity, I read the paragraphs you have, and they take a long time. You've got to give us this in a minute. Right. The, so so my, my point is that it is important to understand what is the patient's risk before you order the test. If the yeah. risk is low, then a positive test will not have as much value uh, to you as if, if the risk is higher. Very well said. And do you think that this philosophy will become standard for clinical practice one day in the country? Um, I think it's something that needs to be incorporated in our decision support systems. And if it's, if it's done well, then I think it has stands a chance, yes. Yeah, thank you. We've been talking with Dr. Zilberberg, Mary Zilberberg, Professor of Epidemiology at the University of Massachusetts and President of Evie Med Research Group, LLC. She blogs occasionally at the Healthcare blog and has her own blog called Healthcare, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Dr. Zilberberg, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Fascinating stuff. I want a new liver. <laughs> well, I'm sure you do, and I want new lungs. And by my calculations, the odds are good, but the goods are odd that it is time to wrap this edition of Second Opinion Live. Happy New Year, everyone. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholz. And I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. I'm the well one here. You can find an archive of this show or listen to past episodes of Second Opinion Live at reachmd.com slash SOL. Thank you very much for joining us here. We've been doing this show now for over a year. We love that you're listening. We love doing this show. Thank you for listening. Keep your radio dialed into us. And have a great 2011. See you next time, everyone.